0: Hi. Welcome to episode 12 of the Hansel and Gretel Code. Ciao! In our last episode, we started work on the third sentence of the fairy tale, and we learned that the fickle finger of a very active Christian deity had pushed the famine button, making all the bread disappear. Oh, crap! And as anyone who has spent any time in Germany knows, depriving a German of bread? Oh, it's just as diabolic a cause of misery and angst as depriving an American of French fries. (coughs) We also found out that right from the start, From their first 1812 edition onwards, the Grimms had decided to baptize the utterly agnostic bread of the manuscript. By calling it daily bread, the Grimms were clearly referencing the Lord's Prayer, the Christian Paternoster, and not so subtly suggesting that we think of Hansel and Gretel bread as soul food.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Yes, indeedy. Now, what's super significant about that is while we could take it at face value and imagine the brothers were just being their devout Calvinist selves, gratuitously smearing bland Christian schmaltz over the plain black bread of the manuscript, it might actually be that they were deliberately and shrewdly Offering their own two cents regarding the interpretation of metaphors and symbols in the story. In other words, instead of taking the Hansel and Gretel bread and famine literally, as most interpretations and interpreters seem to insist, it's more than possible that the Grimms were well aware this was all meant to be understood as metaphor. And they were encouraging us to do the same by tossing out a big, fat softball of a clue. One that could help us decode some of the juicy secrets they themselves knew were hidden within the text. No way. Okay, it's still early days, and it's only one such instance. I can tell you, though, not only won't it be the last, we might actually be on to something that no grim scholar or scholarship has ever before suggested. Oh, really? Hey, I told you we were already becoming fairytale pioneers by bringing temperament and typology into our investigation. Today, we're going to take our pioneering to another level. After we run a couple of errands, we're going to crash the wildest Super Bowl party of all time and discover how soul food became the official snack food of all medieval Super Bowls.
1: Sounds good to me, Curtis.
0: We're also going to learn how the sudden lack of food on the woodcutter family table has everything to do with him betting on the wrong team. Oh, crap! Okay, so before we go off in search of the beer and nachos, let's take another listen to the first three lines of our fairy tale manuscript. And then for comparison, let's listen to the Grimm's baptized version. And just as a reminder, that second recording... It comes from the good people at LibriVox, and it's read by Bob Neufeld. Once upon a time, there was a poor woodcutter who lived before a great forest. He had it so rough, he could barely feed his wife and his two children. Once, there wasn't even any more bread. Hard by a great forest dwelt a poor woodcutter, with his wife and his two children. The boy was called Hansel, and the girl Gretel. He had
1: little to bite and to break,
0: and once, when great dearth fell on the land,
1: he could no longer procure even daily bread. This is gonna suck. Part one. Pile 1, which we say grace, and get lost looking for the frozen pizzas.
0: So, if this daily bread is religious, sacramental grace, as dispensed by the clergy in their man-made cathedrals and churches, or some sort of nebulous, if not numinous, manna from heaven, Maybe we really are justified in understanding our woodcutter's chronic poverty as an expression of his religious humility and piety. In other words, his state of grace.
1: God bless me every Sunday.
0: And if we think through the metaphor, maybe poverty and humility are the currency he uses to buy his daily share of grace. Grace being everyone's insurance policy against eternal damnation. No! Still, why was this grace always in such short supply? Was he just not humble enough?
1: Um, I think maybe.
0: And for goodness sakes, why then does this grace suddenly go completely missing? Why this sudden, disastrous fall from grace? does it mean that he's now in a state of sin?
1: Um, I'm not so sure.
0: I hate to keep harping on this, but if our woodcutter, diligently following his calling and working in the forest of the unconscious, well, if he's symbolic of someone praying within the proper bounds of their own religion, why is he never reaping much of any benefit from all that prayer and devotion? And why, all of a sudden, is there no benefit whatsoever? Is this the fault of the consciousness symbolized by the four square woodcutter family? Hell, is it the fault of the religion?
1: I don't think so.
0: Or is there something otherwise completely extraneous and unconscious we're missing? Or that we haven't yet been told?
1: So how should I know?
0: Who even cares? Well, I'm sorry, but our woodcutter just does not seem to be at fault for causing this acute problem. Even if we insist that it's only laziness causing his chronic poverty, the Grimms themselves insist that this is a collective famine, not one limited to a single family or even a single consciousness. So, a state of sin that doesn't make any real sense, even if we were to pin the blame on Adam and Eve and label it original sin. Oh. And for sure, nothing seems to explain why the woodcutter's usual state of grace is so frickin' meager to begin with. Of course, given the common existential reality of our own postmodern cynicism, this piss-poor state of medieval grace it makes much more sense applied to our zeitgeist than it does to theirs.
1: What?
0: Even more fundamentally, is this the sort of thing we would or should expect from anyone living a deliberate life or piously practicing their religion in any historical moment? Have a little more faith. Whether or not we ourselves are interested in living a deliberate life, this thing, this grace or soul food or whatever you want to call it, it's now completely gone. So we'd better figure out exactly what it is. And where to find it? Because the fairy tale is telling those of us invested in the story that whatever the hell it is, having it simply isn't optional. Just like food, it's a matter of life and death for everyone. What? Now, considering we're dealing with a metaphor, we're going to have to rely on our intuition to solve the problem and find whatever this missing thing is because the place we're gonna have to look for it is in the unconscious. Relying on logic, that's fine. Only so long as we're dealing with this famine as literal and this bread as just another grocery item. Start nosing around metaphor in the unconscious and logic alone will just get us lost and stuck. Probably somewhere in the frozen food section. Where are we? One good thing though, Logic will eventually start looking for a way out.
1: We need to clean up on aisle 13. That's aisle 13.
0: Part 2
1: Tile 2 In which we reach the checkout counter and find that some demon is demanding our whole paycheck. It rains like a, and uh, we do get really potty mouthed. As we learned in episode eleven,
0: the historic model for this fairy tale famine it was most likely the so-called Great Famine of 1315, a terrifying act of God that affected the entire population of Europe and lasted for years. You can be sure that everyone having to deal with the Great Famine, logical-minded and superstitious people alike did everything they possibly could to find an empiric cause for the problem. Why, 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 why? See, they just naturally figured pinpointing the cause that got them into this mess should lead them to some logical conclusions about how to get the hell out of it. Understandably most people considered the famine to be a punishment from God. Some of the less judgmental souls and uh, staunch free-will skeptics, well, they might have assumed it was simply written in the stars, which man was powerless to influence. Still, given the overwhelming power of Christian conscience and guilt and the medieval state of logic and reason, most everyone figured the underlying cause was the fault of man, giving in to the temptation of demons. And among the various solutions relied on was a marked increase in religious devotion. With pledges, vows, and sacrifices, all designed to favorably influence and appease the offended and punishing deity.
1: You fools! give you the simplest tasks, I even give you ice cream, and still, you disappoint me.
0: And this actually included processions of those famous wackadoodle zealots, the flagellants, whose numbers surged dramatically in this period of history.
1: Ouch! You pathetic morons!
0: Also given the severity of the situation, and the desperation of the population, even the religious faithful would have hedged their bets with a superstitious mix of prayer and necromancy. What's that? Well, that is to say, various forms of magic meant to counteract the work of demons, which in some cases even meant getting them to work for you.
1: Oh, good.
0: All in all, most everyone tried to deal logically with forces only their intuition could comprehend. And by logically, I simply mean thinking in terms of cause and effect. Now unfortunately for them, the chief cause of the Great Famine was something that has forever stymied logic. What's that? It was the weather. Generally dry day on Wednesday with sunny periods. However, there may be more cloud
1: in the southeast where it
0: will Oh, increase. once again, if we're going to go with this famine as metaphor, and therefore give our intuition the reins, we're going to have to go off in search of this mysterious missing manna that we're all to this day still dying for. Oh, and uh, don't bother asking any of those helpful green-aproned grocery clerks. Eh, that's just a waste of time they don't know which isle it's in either.
1: Uh, ah! <laughs> uh, uh, uh,
0: of course, maybe it's still just a matter of money, or lack of it, which should be much easier to remedy than lousy weather. In fact, the word the Grimm's use for famine is teuerung, which these days simply means inflation. And for sure, heinously inflated prices for food organic and otherwise, were a prominent feature of the Great Famine. So, maybe we do need to stick with it and just follow the money.
1: I like that!
0: Nah, uh, we've already tried that, and we found it much too literal to get us anywhere. Now, there is, however, a corollary of money that just might be the ticket. What's that? Well, that's power. Which the Vatican had enough of to make even Jeff Bezos envious. So let's just take a quick little jaunt in the time machine and head back to Rome. The year is 1215, and we're about to pay a quick visit to the Fourth Lateran Council as they go about the business of exercising their power.
1: Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy.
0: No, oh, don't worry. We're not going to sit in on all the Latin blah blah blah. And at least we'll be out of the frickin' rain. All we need is one brief snippet of what they had to say about the appointment of preachers.
1: Blah 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 blah
0: Among the various things are conducive to the salvation of the Christian people, the nourishment of God's word is recognized to be especially necessary. Since just as the bodies are fed with material food, so the soul is fed with spiritual food. Man lives not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God.
1: Oh, when I suppose you think that's funny, huh?
0: Well... It is kind of like a mother bird feeding her young, don't you think?
1: Uh, ew.
0: Anyway, what this tells us is that the word of God, provided by the franchise of officially licensed preachers, is itself the soul food that's missing. That's correct. And that is indeed what medieval Christians fervently believed. For sure. So now that we've got the word on this, Let's uh, hop back on the time machine. And instead of going forward, let's go back another 138 years to January 25th, 1077.
1: I hope this wasn't a waste of time.
0: Well, I promise, once we arrive, we're going to get the definitive answer to our burning question. What the fuck did an entire population do to deserve the collective fall from grace symbolized by our fairy tale famine?
1: Curtis, what happened?
0: Part 3.
1: Teil 3. In which we turn on Wild World of Sports and watch a three day medieval Super Bowl played in the snow.
0: The spot we're heading towards is now one hell of a lonely, windswept ruin on the heights of a place about 20 kilometers southeast of Parma. There's absolutely nothing to be seen here, just trees. Well, having once visited it myself, I know that you get a nice view of the Alps from there. You can also see what little is left of the castle that lent its name to the place a castle that had been owned by one hell of a powerful lady.
1: Mr. President, I'm delighted
0: to welcome you and Mrs. Trump to Buckingham Palace this evening. Uh, no, nah, not that lady. Ooh! Well, on January 25th, 1077, the lady in question had a house, uh, or castle guest, by the name of Pope Gregory the Seventh, And you know, The fact that you can find her fancy marble tomb right there in St. Peter's in the Vatican? Well, I don't want to cast no aspersions because I don't think she was no saint, if you know what I mean. I heard that. Her name was Matilda, and the name of her castle was Canossa.
1: Si, 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 si. Si.
0: Whether or not you've heard of Canossa, you might argue that I'm leading us on a very obscure wild goose chase. But once we've examined, however cursorily, this single strand of a very long and twisted transalpine historical religious thread, we're going to find that it is intimately woven into the composition of our entire fairy tale tapestry. righty then, are you ready for this? Whatever. Here goes. Socio-economic-political-religious-power-gamesmanship doesn't sound like much of a sport and could easily be turned into a comically long German vocabulary word. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. It can also be summed up in that one word, Canossa, a word that's as loaded and significant to Western Europeans as the word Columbus is to Americans. Is that so? Canossa as a meme or historical soundbite actually sums up a veritable Super Bowl of medieval history.
1: Oh, see,
0: light, okay, okay. Woohoo. Now the big play of that game? It was set up in ten seventy six almost an entire year earlier, right after Pope Gregory VII sacked the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry IV. So in the instant replay, we can see that what Gregory did was to both excommunicate Henry and kick him off the throne. And this pretty much happened right before halftime in what had been an ongoing pissing contest between church and state, otherwise known by the throat-parching academic title of The Investiture (coughs) Controversy. Of course, there had always been wars and political intrigues everywhere in Europe. And this dispute, being no different, was ultimately going to be decided by a clash of military forces on somebody or other's home turf. The turf part, of course, belonging to one of the principals involved. But the home part? Well, it was always the local peasants and their homes suffering the destructive horrors of war. The peasant victims in this instance were, not so surprisingly, the Germanic ancestors of our woodcutter. I know. Now the rules of the game included one called the Divine Right of Kings, which belonged to the captain of the Emperor's team. They also had a separate rule belonging to the captain of the Vatican team, allowing him to claim authority over anything called divine. Together, those rules added a serious layer of intrigue and confusion to a political game of already overwhelming complexity. What seems to be the problem. In that turbulent millennial zeitgeist, with church and state so ambiguously and incestuously intertwined, Gregory and Henry were essentially disputing control over the super trophy of divine power. A thousand-year-old trump card, if you will. The emperor arguing that he had the power to choose the pope, and the pope arguing that He had the power to choose the emperor. Of course, you can see that this game would have had to be a real snooze fest. With both teams chasing each other's tail like that, it was bound to end in a frustrating tie.
1: This is just awful.
0: Sure enough, throughout the game, the two teams did little more than a whole lot of trash talking.
1: Move out of the way, stupid.
0: And in the highlight reels, we do, in fact, have all the Ridiculous and insulting letters they sent back and forth to each other you have this guy Lindsey Graham a total lightweight Here's a guy in the private sector. He couldn't get a job. Believe me couldn't
1: get a job. He'd be poor
0: He's becoming a jackass at a time when we need to have a serious debate about the future of the party in the country
1: and I see this
0: Uh oh um, Not those highlight reels there was however One more super special rule that guaranteed real excitement. It was a rule allowing the captain of the Vatican team to triple penalize the emperor. Which is exactly what Gregory did by slapping Henry and his team with the supersized penalty known as excommunication, anathema, and interdiction. Yikes! Now, due to the potent nature of pre-Reformation belief in the dire consequences of excommunication, it's not at all far-fetched for us to see that, psychologically, excommunication is hauntingly similar to the child abandonment in our fairy tale. Metaphorically speaking, of course. Meaning that getting kicked out of the church, it's not so coincidentally akin to Hensel and Gretel getting kicked out of the house. Interesting. Let's not get ahead of ourselves, though. Because what we've got right in front of us, that's wild and crazy enough.
1: This is one of those games that echoes forever. This is a game that reaches across generations. This is a game where players make the big plays.
0: In fact, it's the stuff of legends and medieval highlight reels. And it's worth any number of instant replays from all sorts of angles. And for the last 1,000 years, it's stood as a play that's nearly as famous as.
1: The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat.
0: Vinko Bogotai's ski ramp fail in Wide World of Sports Ooh. as one of the most famous of all medieval sound bites and the most famous Super Bowl play of all time, Henry's response to the penalty of excommunication, it might as well have been the very first agony of defeat moment. Ouch! In German, it's known as the Walk to Canossa. Der Gang nach Canossa. It's kind of like Henry just took a walk across the Alps and down into Parma for some decent Italian food.
1: The sun is shining down on me. In
0: Italian, though, it's not so surprisingly known instead as...
1: Spaghetti.
0: Uh, no. The humiliation of Canossa. L'humiliazione di Canossa.
1: si, si. Si. si, 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 si. si. si.
0: So here's the story. Having been excommunicated, Henry's plan, not unlike that of Hansel was, before anything else, to find his way back into the church. Which he did. What we're talking about now, actually what everyone in Europe has been talking about ever since, is the way he did it. How? Well, being the famous and vaguely apocryphal soundbite that it is, you can read about Henry's play most anywhere. Although Wikipedia, like most contemporary descriptions It does a lot of hemming and hawing over the historicity of the facts and factoids. In other words, the wiki article does its best to throw the cold water of logic on this living and breathing thousand-year-old meme. A meme capturing the arrogance of victory and the humiliation of defeat whenever we humans find ourselves forced against our will to apologize to someone.
1: All right already, get on with it.
0: A 19th century article written without all of the supposedly's and allegedly's, eh, it's good enough. But the story I remember from grammar school, it's probably much closer to the one that's still alive deep in the European consciousness. And that is... Henry, bareheaded and wearing a hair shirt knelt in the snow for three days and three nights all the while knocking on the castle doors pleading for entry and begging the Pope's forgiveness
1: it's locked they call it in some circles the Hail Mary it was certainly prayerful
0: and uh Oh, yeah, he was uh, barefoot, too. So, uh, talk about cooling your heels. Ah. Ah. (laughs) Part 4
1: Teil 4 In which we run into the earliest soup Nazi and find out that Shark Week is coming early this year.
0: Of course, the reason behind Henry's self-effacing or humiliating walk to beg Gregory's forgiveness was all politics. The excommunication and anathema part, politically motivated as it was, it didn't bother Henry. Not any more than the spiritual consequences of using birth control bother modern Catholics. Now, as far as Henry was concerned, excommunication and anathema... They were strictly minor penalties, more like an offsides or a delay of game. Get back here,
1: that's a penalty for showing off.
0: Oh, the real kicker? That was the third part of the penalty. That was a game changer.
1: An absolutely shocking finish.
0: And not because of its effect on Henry. The real problem it presented was its effect on the rest of his team his constituency. What happens? You see, Henry's excommunication carried with it the crucial and devastating blow of a papal interdiction. What's that? According to the rule books, an interdiction meant that anyone who continued to respect and obey Henry as liege, emperor, and uh, team captain well, was not necessarily excommunicated themselves. No, interdiction meant They were now forbidden to enter a church and receive the sacraments. And this meant they couldn't baptize their children or even bury their dead in the good graces of the church. And, uh, oh yeah, there was to be absolutely no preaching. So, no soup for them. Or, I mean, no word of God for them. You, uh, get where I'm going with this. No all of Henry's subjects, essentially everyone in Germany, while they were now completely deprived of the daily bread of religious grace. What? What this amounted to was a blatant and powerful form of ecclesiastic blackmail. And once again, it was the faithful and devout peasants who suffered the most. Stuck between the Scylla and Charybdis of papal versus imperial dominion, they were denied all forms of sacramental grace through no fault of their own.
1: Now that's not fair!
0: Here then is the cheeky historical truth behind our metaphoric famine. That's it! For anyone not brought up in a Catholic or Christian family, this might be difficult to understand. But for Germans, and Europeans in general, even those of the Protestant persuasion... Whose ancestors had been Catholic for many generations? This was arguably the worst experience of harsh, punishing treatment ever visited upon European Catholics by the Vatican.
1: Why?
0: (laughs) Because this meant they were now all at risk of (laughs) eternal damnation. (laughs) And while this was the most famous instance, it was neither the first nor the last time it would happen. Over the centuries, various popes never hesitated to drop the nuclear option of excommunication and interdiction on recalcitrant political opponents and their hapless, blameless subjects. Wow. Asshole. In fact, while there were plenty of famines and plagues throughout the Middle Ages— there were probably way more of these heinous and terrifying acts of papal blackmail than there were terrible and terrifying acts of God.
1: Don't, don't say that.
0: So there we have it. With bread symbolizing religious grace, we can now run with the hypothesis that our fairy tale famine is metaphoric code for excommunication and papal interdiction.
1: Lewis, I think I found what we're looking for.
0: Now, I, for one, sure as hell think we have. I'm also sure that since Henry's team didn't cover the spread, our woodcutter is now worried about loan sharks. Uh Uh-oh. Because in our next episode, we find out that he's having full-blown panic attacks and can't stop dreaming about Jaws. (gasps) So let's just take another listen to our first three lines of the fairy tale plus the next piece that advances the story. Once upon a time, there was a poor woodcutter who lived before a great forest. He had it so rough he could barely feed his wife and his two children. Once, there wasn't even any more bread. And he was terrified. Ah! Well, Thanks for listening. I really hope you're enjoying the story because I sure as hell enjoy sharing it with you. And once again, if you would please, please, please share it with someone you think might enjoy it too. That would at least make uh, like three or, geez, maybe even four of us.
1: Oh my God.
0: Alrighty then. Ciao a tutti.
1: Ciao